and during some of the toughest times, I have a little piece of paper in my wallet that I keep all the time, even to this moment, uh, of different things that I that mean to me, different sayings that mean a lot to me, uh, things that I strive for, recognizing my responsibility to give back. Reoccurring mantra I got into in college where I would just say, I'm going to break the mold. Two days after my second injury, my dad flew out to Indiana and we drove home. Went right up to my room, slept for a day, and then I woke up the next morning, I spray-painted my wall. No quitting me. I remember, you know, there is no quitting me and I won't, you know, I won't give up. The number one thing you gotta remember is you're transferring energy. And whatever energy you got is the energy the viewers are going to have. You are listening to Intentional Performers with Brian Levinson, where we talk with experts of craft about their journey and what they have intentionally done to be their best self. As we talk with them, the hope is that we uncover intentional gems that you can use in your life now. Let's kick it over to Brian to introduce this week's guest. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to the Intentional Performers Podcast. I am Brian Levinson. During the day, I work as an executive coach and a mental performance coach, where I get to work with all kinds of interesting people. They are directors, they are CEOs, they are athletes, they are sports coaches, I love what I do for a living, and this podcast has just become a labor of love for me as well. And if you enjoyed today's conversation, I'd appreciate it if you went over to iTunes and wrote us a review. It really helps us as we continue to try to build this thing out and expand our reach. Also, social media is a great platform where we've gotten a lot of listeners that have found us on Twitter, on Instagram, on LinkedIn, on Facebook, wherever it is your social. If you could share today's conversation, I would be forever grateful. Now to today's guest. Matt Stover played in the NFL for 20 years. He played for 13 years with the Baltimore Ravens. And when he retired in 2009, he was the third most accurate kicker in the history of the NFL. So this is a guy who played at the highest level and did it as well, did his craft as well as anybody that's ever done it. And if you follow football, you know that kicking is extremely mental. There is a process to it. There is a routine to it. So Matt's going to talk about the routines and the habits that helped him have success in the NFL. You're going to also learn about Matt and how he thinks about his strength. He's going to talk about physical fitness. He's going to talk about mental fitness, emotional fitness, and spiritual fitness. So he is somebody who embodies what it means to be strong and really worked on all aspects of himself in order to be the best football player he can be. He's a Super Bowl winner. He was a leader on the Ravens. And today he's doing some really interesting stuff around finance and philanthropy, and he's going to tell you more about that work. But Matt is the oldest player to participate in a Super Bowl. He was 42 years old when he did that, and he is in the Ravens' ring of honor, their Hall of Fame. He's one of the best kickers to ever do it. And I could go on about his accolades and what he did on the football field, but I think what you're going to love about Matt is how thoughtful he is, how intentional he is, and how intentional he was as both a football player on the field and off the field, and how he really thought about how he showed up on a regular basis and how he valued consistency and the ability to put in the work and do the work and earn the respect of his teammates and the trust of his teammates so that when he got on the field in the biggest moments, he was ready for those moments. So without further ado, I'm so excited to present to you, Matt Stover. Matt, really excited to chat with you on the podcast. Uh, We were connected by Brad Craddock, who is a great kicker in his own right. And I met Brad when I was working with the University of Maryland football team. And, uh, you know, Brad is, is a different kind of cat. I would go onto the practice field with University of Maryland. And at the time, they actually didn't have a special teams coach. So it was Brad's senior year. And Brad was actually running all of the special teams practice uh, for the team, which was pretty wild. And when I would chat with Brad, it would often be that I would learn far more from him than he would learn from me. And a smart guy, and he's now working in the corporate world. And uh, he talks about you and says, Matt has all kinds of great stories and all kinds of wisdom. So uh, when he told me that, I said, oh, I'd love to have him on the podcast. So excited to chat with you, learn from you today and, and share you with uh, my community as well. Uh, where I'd love to start is, I know you grew up in Texas and 
Uh, football and Texas are kind of synonymous, but I'd love to learn about your childhood and what life was like for you as a kid and uh, your family and just get a sense of who you were back then and how that's helped shape who you are today. Well, you know, Texas, uh, I started out in the soccer world, uh, you know, when I was in elementary and, and found myself already having a talent. I was fast. I was, uh, what happened to me in eighth grade, though, is by the time you're in eighth grade, if you haven't developed your left foot, um, you know, the kids who are hitting puberty and even though I was faster than all the kids, they ended up catching up and I never developed my left foot strongly. So I was forced into taking football on full time. Um, my father really couldn't afford the club soccer thing and the travel thing. So football being that it was a 5A football in Texas in the 80s, you know, big Friday night lights. Uh, that ended up being how I got pushed into kicking. Uh, and when I was 11, I was a pump pass and kick champion. Uh, Ford, Ford used to run this big uh, pump pass and kick. And uh, I, I won the, the region and ended up getting beat because I shanked my punt. Uh, in the semifinals, but uh, I cried for about two weeks, and it lit my fire and really uh, helped me become the kicker because I experienced failure at a very young age, and you see certain kids who uh, either they can accept the failure and let it make them better, or they allow it to crumble them, and uh, for me, it was, uh, it, was a, it was a spark, and uh, it was a great learning uh, time for me, so that all took place in Texas, and my father and my mother gave me great opportunities. The high school I went to gave me great opportunities. I was a Dallas Cowboy fan, so and I sold programs at all the Cowboy and SMU games back when SMU was Pony Express, right? And uh, so I was how I learned how to kick is I actually went down during pregame, uh, you know, down to the not onto the field but to the field, and I was just watching the kickers kick, and I just picked up what they were doing, and there was really no coaching at that time for kicking. Um, there was a guy named Ray Pelfrey who did a pretty good job, but, uh, he forced you to kick his way, which I disagree with because I always beat all of his kickers. But, uh, so that being said, I, I really understood, uh, kicking, uh, because of the environment I was in, I had the opportunity at my high school and in high school, I was, you know, a, a, an all around athlete. Uh, I was a punter, kicker and a wide receiver, but I didn't kick field goals until my senior year. So, uh, I was grateful that Louisiana tech took an, uh, a shot on me. Uh, and gave me a full scholarship, gave me the job. Mind you, I, I earned it very quickly. I was a, a all-state, all-conference uh, freshman and freshman of the year uh, uh, special teams player for the Southland Conference back in the day with La Tech, where I went to school. So, and Louisiana Tech was just four hours away. Hey, Matt, so why weren't you kicking field goals until your senior year? What, what, what was going on? There? Yeah, great question, Brian. In fact, that's because in Texas, it's usually the older guy gets the job. I mean, if you have a senior who can kick, he's got the experience and the coaches let uh, that guy do it. And so a guy named Kent uh, Quisenberry, Kendall Quisenberry was the kicker. And then my junior year was Darren Boroff. And Darren and I are still friends. I was his holder. <laughs> my junior year, I held for the kicker. And then finally, by my senior year, um, I was clearly the best uh, field goal kicker. And I was better than they, those other guys were, but the coach, Joe Bob Johnson, didn't give me the chance. So uh, that's what, that's how it all worked out. So did you stay with soccer as well? or No, or I was done. Eighth grade, done. Yeah, because by the time you're in high school, remember, it's all, it's all high school and club soccer at that point. And uh, I really was a good, but I, uh, but I never, it wasn't a full-time sport for me. And if it's not uh, in that region, in, in Texas and Dallas, especially uh, where I was, soccer was an all-year-round sport. And you had to really get focused in on it. And my skill set wasn't as great as the other guys were who worked on it every day, every, uh, all day of the year. Here I was a track and a baseball guy and a football guy. I played basketball all the way up to 10th grade. So, you know, I... These soccer guys, they did it all year round, and that was the only sport they did. And I'm going to go back to that time where you failed at 11 and you're crying. What did your, your parents teach you to sort of take that and use that rather than take that and, and cause you to shut down? Well, they just, back to that. I think the biggest thing a parent can do at that point is support and unconditionally love, say that they're still proud of them. You got further than anybody else in, your, in the whole state of Texas, all of Oklahoma. You know, so Matt, come on. Um, you were, you know, amongst your failure, look how much success you had. And that's something that you have to embrace as a professional athlete. You know, I was a 80 something percent kicker. That means that I missed a you know, few out of 10. 
there's failure, uh, but you have to look and continue to say, look, I'm still one of the best. Even though I missed a, a crucial field goal, um, you know, I have created a lot of wins because of my performance and, and my consistency. And just go into your parents a little bit. What values did they pass down to you other than love you unconditionally and support you? And, and it sounds like instill belief in you, but what other values were a part of your household? Well, number one, commitment to one another and self-sacrifice. Uh, my parents, uh, you know, until my mom passed away, they were married and my grandparents did the same thing and they, they, they stayed committed. So they showed me that and the value of that relationship of the marriage relationship. And then of course, all the typical values of, you know, don't lie, don't cheat, don't steal, those type of things. But more than anything, hard, hard uh, work ethic um, and respect for your fellow man. Um, You know, always respect others. Uh, Be competitive uh, while you're in the lines, but outside the lines, be the nicest guy you can be. Uh, You can't, you can't be nice enough in this world. And I think uh, we could do a lot better with that. It's interesting. I was just talking to a client of mine. He's a CEO and he was talking about a value of his company. He wanted it to be gentle Mm -hmm. and that gentle should be a value. And it was an interesting comment because I said, gosh, as a man, I think of gentle as being soft, Mm. but then we think of gentle man as being a positive. Mm -hmm. And it was just an interesting dichotomy for me because I'm like, why is it that we think gentle is bad, but gentle man is good. Mm -hmm. And so to your point about being kind, I think sometimes people think kindness is weakness, but it's not. And being a gentleman is a weakness. Gentleman is strength. Absolutely. Um, yeah. I, I think you're talking about vulnerability too, Brian. I mean, I've worked out multi-million dollar deals because of vulnerability. Look, I, I tell them, this is who I am. This is what I'm about. Um, this is what I'm, I can do. This is what I can't do. And, and the same goes with kicking. When I was able to go to Brad and when after his freshman, Brad Craddock, when he had missed a few field goals, I said, let me tell you a few things about my career. And I gave him a few situations where I just flat out failed. And he went, dude, yeah, I feel a lot better now. I said, exactly. Vulnerability, it actually brings strength because when somebody says to me, have you ever been nervous standing over a kick? Well, I'm going to say, yes, I have. But what I try to be is anxious. Anxious is, okay, yeah, uh, of course, my heart rate's up. I, it, it's hard to breathe uh, because it's such a high pressure situation. Nervousness comes in because of doubt. So I'm saying to you that anxiousness is just a normal emotion that we have in high pressure, stressful situations. But nervousness in my mind is, uh, I don't know, man, I, can I make this or not? And, and I said to Brad, do you ever think that I never went out there nervous? I'd be lying. So that vulnerability and sharing that with him empowered him to know that, hey, I knew what I need to embrace my nervousness and turn it into anxiety because I know that everybody feels this way at some point or another and not get scared of it and go out there and perform. Two things to pull on there that are just awesome. Number one is vulnerability. Brene Brown has studied vulnerability. She's a Texan as well. She's written a book, Daring Greatly. She's written a lot of books, uh, awesome TED Talks. So if anyone's interested in vulnerability, go check out Brene's work. And she's linked vulnerability to courage. Mm-hmm. And her thought is you can't be courageous. Once again, a lot of men say courageousness, good. Uh, vulnerability, oh, I don't know. Mm-hmm. But she links vulnerability and courage. She basically says you can't be courageous without vulnerability. Um, that's so right. That's really cool. That's really cool that you acknowledge vulnerability uh, as a, a strength for you. That's a value. I mean, I looked at that as a value, just like gentleness. I mean, yeah. I mean, uh, kindness. Uh, I think that the coaches that I've worked with that are vulnerable with me, they get my heart. And I'll die for them, right? And, and, and they'll share with that. But the ones who they share no vulnerability, they got all the answers. And, hey, you don't know what you don't know. I've heard that one to the players before from a coach. And it's like, dude, you're done. And they, they, they blame everything on the player instead of accepting their vulnerability. That's why I love Belichick. Belichick would throw a coach under the bus as soon as he would throw a, co- a player under the bus. They're all held accountable, and they're held accountable equally. Uh, you know, of course, players more, but, but uh, as a whole, I, I think that's crucial, uh, not only on the field, but off the field and also within your family units and business and everything else. We're going to jump around here, but you mentioned Belichick. You played for him when you were in Cleveland? Five years, yeah. And so what was that experience like for you? Can you just go into that a little bit more? Well, that's a, 
you know, a, a big Pandora's box. <laughs> uh, I, I owe my career to Bill Belichick. Bill was a, um, a very difficult coach, uh, expect, expects high, high, you know, standards. Um, what he did for me is he tested me to make sure that I had grit. Um, he didn't want a kicker out there that was scared to go out there. Uh, he wanted to make sure that I wanted the ball, and he put me to the test in practice. Uh, he made sure that uh, I was tested to the 10th degree in practice, you know, by pushing on me, throwing towels at me, having guys come through and block a field goal, putting silicone on the ball so I would be thinking of the snapper. Um, he wanted to make sure that I, as a, a place kicker, uh, had that grit and had the desire to want the ball. Uh, I think that's the number one trait a kicker has to have is that he's got to want the ball. Uh, so in a last second situation uh, or even right before halftime or whenever there would be a, a pressure situation, all of them have pressure. But, you know, the kicker really hopes that they don't get a first down. They want the ball. Um, and at, at that, that was my trait. He put me to the test on several times. But I remember one time in a preseason game he punted the ball and it was a 51-yard field goal. And I looked at him like, dude, you're not going to let me kick? You know, and I was all pissed off at him, and I showed it to him, and he gave me his mind, trust me. But he loved the fact that I wanted the ball and I was willing to fight for it. So he knew that I was his guy. And, you know, and, and of course, I had five years with him, and, and 15 years after that, uh, you know, or 14 years after that, I, I, I'd been a kicker. So we had a great relationship. Uh, he expected a lot out of you. Um, and uh, I, lo I love the way his coach coaching style is because he holds everybody accountable, no matter if you're Tom Brady or a coach. Uh, he does that. So uh, uh, I learned a lot from him. And it was uh, a bummer that uh, he got fired going into Baltimore out of Cleveland that year. And, of course, we all know that was a mistake. Uh, but Modell did get a Super Bowl and Super Bowl uh, 35. So uh, that was good. Yeah, there's been some interesting documentaries that talk about the the staff that Belichick had built in Cleveland, the players that he had built with the team that you were part of. And basically, you know, that he had a lot to do with the Ravens success going forward, even though he wasn't there. And it's, it's just, yep. it's fascinating to me when people get fired and why they get fired and when is it too soon? And, and when is it too late? Uh, that stuff is always interesting to me. I want to go back to that moment though, as a junior in high school where you're holding you're holding for another kicker because it's clear to me that you have a fight in you. You've got a competitive spirit in you sure. to tell Bill Belichick, Hey, I want that ball. Like, why are you punting? I can make that kick. Um, mm -hmm. I'm curious as a holder and you're on this team and they have this system that uh, says, Hey, if you're older, you're probably going to play more than the younger guy. How did you respond as a 16, 17-year-old kid as a backup? I'm curious to understand that. Well, the fact that I punted, I was the punter, and that I was a wide receiver, it was like, okay, whatever. you know. But I loved – what I really loved to do was kick footballs. Um, you really don't know when you're 16, 17 if you're any good. I mean, you know you're good, but you've never been put to the test you know, in a game. Uh, and if you had been, it, it was maybe in – junior high, which really doesn't matter. The snap and a hold are hard enough execution, much less the kick. So uh, when, you, when you're dealing with that piece in high school, I didn't I, – I really didn't – I knew I was good, but and, and why not me was always my motto. Yeah, why, why, why couldn't I be the kicker? But, okay, they've got this guy, and why couldn't I go kick in college? Why couldn't I kick in the NFL? I mean, really? And so as I developed, and then my senior year, I was able to kick 12 or 14 field goals. Um, and I had some recruiting going on. Uh, only Louisiana Tech was the only one that gave me a full scholarship, and it ended up being the perfect spot for me. Division One AA at the time, we went Division One A. I had three head coaches in four years, <laughs> so so it was a, a tough transition to where they are now uh, as an organization. But you know, I, I look back at uh, my time in high school, and uh, you know, being an athlete, I think is most important for a kicker as well. Not only his mindset to want the ball, but you need to be an athlete and you got to be able to have grit and, and deal with injury and pain. And, and, uh, cause kicking, you know, believe it or not, you pull muscles and you, you know, have back spasms and you break a rib or whatever it is. You got to have, have that in you too. So, uh, you know, and, and one of the things I'm most proud of Brian in my NFL career, actually all the way through is I never missed a game. And people say, well, all you do is kick a ball. Well, okay. You go look at any roster or any kicker that's ever played. 
see if they've ever missed football games. And every single one of them missed games. I never, ever missed a game. I got a did not play because we didn't kick off any because I had a kickoff guy and we didn't kick any field goals. And then my, uh, in my, when I played for the Indianapolis Colts, my year 20, uh, Adam and Terry came back for one game just to see if they, he was ready to kick week 15. And he wasn't because I was kicking for him in Super Bowl, going into the Super Bowl 44 with Peyton. And that was my last year. And I, I'm giving you this long story because, Hey man, I, I was, I really worked hard off the field and really worked hard to manage myself to stay healthy and stay fresh, not only physically, but mentally as well going through the season. So that's a whole nother topic. Yeah, we'll get into it. But the motto of why not me, where did that come from? Um, yeah, I, I, you, you hear people say, well, you can do anything you want to do in this life. You know, just put your mind to it. You, well, I, I'm going to say I can never run a sub 10 flat 100 yard dash. Sorry, that would never happen. But I did have this skill to be able to kick a ball. And I always went around and I, I, when I was kicking around, even with the guys that were ahead of me in high school, I'm better than these guys. And then I would go kick against them in high school against the other team. Well, I'm better than he is. And I'd get to high school. We'd go play Florida State or Alabama or, you know, whoever it was we were playing. I would beat their guy. And I'm sitting there going, man, I'm way better than these guys. Why not me? So really it came down to understanding that I had a talent, but, uh, and, and then I had the mindset and that, you know, enough arrogance, I guess you would say, you got to have a little chip on your shoulder, but not, not in a non-humility way, but just say, yeah, I'm good enough. Why not? I love that you used the word arrogance. I was actually going to kind of say the word arrogance. So you took the word right out of my, my mouth. I, I'm writing a book and I've got this framework on your mindset for preparation should be different than your mindset for performance. And you're, you're hitting on that completely, which is I was the hardest working dude. Like people think, Oh, a kicker. Well, I did everything physically to get myself ready. And I would make sure that I was taking care of my body. I'm sure you're trying to take care of your mind, mental, physical, emotional, spiritual. And that takes humility, right? To, to be a great kicker, which you were, but to still say, hey, I want to get better. I want to improve. I want to make sure that I'm healthy for every game. And I could feel the pride that you have in telling that story of, hey, I never missed a game. And then to get on the field and have these six foot three, 250 pound dudes coming <laughs> running at you and trying to, <laughs> to take the ball away from you take some yeah. arrogance, right? To be in a stadium of 75,000 people uh, all waving and cheering and chanting and, and still focus on your job and, and believing that you can make that 50-yard kick like you were talking about to Bill Belichick takes a little inner arrogance. And so when I study elite performance, I find that the best of the best are humble in preparation and then have this inner arrogance. And it's not outward. It's not necessarily flexing muscles or talking trash, yeah. but it's this inner belief that they're important that they're special at what they do and that they're the right person for the job. And as I'm hearing you talk, man, I'm hearing that, that play out in an incredible way. Absolutely, Brian. In fact, it's funny when you have, as a kicker, you get um, demeaned a lot, uh, you know, kicker, you know, that kind of stuff. Uh, but I know in my mind, and as a, as a military minded guy, uh, I'm the sniper. I'm the guy on top of that roof who's not down in the trenches, but I'm taking guys off the roof and I've got your back. That's exactly how I look at it as a kicker. I've got your back. When you guys don't get your job done, I got to come in and clean up stuff. So, and then the best teammates I ever had, somebody like Ray Lewis, right? Vinny Testaverde or whoever it was, those guys, and Ed Reed, Jonathan Ogden, they never demeaned me. They always esteemed me because they understood that I had a vital role for this team and they trusted me. And I think really what you talk about when you, when you say 300 pound guys running at me and dude, I am not thinking one thought about those people. Why? Cause I trust the guys in front of me. I trust my snapper and my holder. You can't let that even come in just a little bit. People say, well, oh my gosh, don't you get nervous out there with those big guys running at you? I'm going, no, I don't even think about it. Well, do you hear the crowd? I says, well, yeah, you hear it. But, you know, it's really harder to kick at home a lot of the times because the stadium's so quiet. You can hear the other team chirping at you. I mean, literally, when you're on the other team, uh, when you're at home, the other team, it's quiet in the stadium. So you've got these, hey, Stover, and you hear it. <laughs> so when you're in a away game, it's so loud you can't hear that. So those are the type of things that I, I, I understood and, and, and used it to my advantage. You mentioned trust and that those leaders – uh, they, they trusted you. How, how did you build that trust? Can you walk me through? I mean, you played for 
the Ravens for a long time. 20 years. Yeah. 18 years with one organization, Browns Ravens. Right. So, so, so how do you develop that? Right. Yeah. How do you make number one, you got to perform, you know, just you're in a high performance industry. It's just the way it is in any business. You have to perform. So if you're doing your job, you do it well. Then, then the other thing is who are you? What is your character? How can, what are your values? Can they trust you as a person? So when I missed a team charter one time, literally, I totally misread the itinerary for the day. The plane was getting ready to take off, and I show up at the Ravens facility thinking, oh, well, I'm on time. Everybody was gone. They're all ready to go to plane. This is back in 1998 when we had Nokia phones, those big box things. And I, I, I call up the guy, you know, the head of the opera. I said, they said, Matt, are you okay? I said, yeah, I'm okay. I said, thank God. You've never been late for anything. You know, we thought something happened to you. I said, no, I totally messed up. So, I, I, you know, you man up. Um, or when you do miss a game-winning field goal, happens, right? How do, you, how do you man up? How do you stand up? When you go 0 for 3 in opening day in 2005, how do you react to that? And after that, I missed one field goal for the rest of the season. So those are the type of things because they understood that I, I had my whole heart in it and I have their back and I took a personal interest. It wasn't some just career thing that I was thinking about. It was bigger than that. And it was about how I could help this team and how I can make uh, the guys around me better. I love that. Trust is earned and it's a two-way street. And it is earned. a lot of people will just say, oh, why don't you trust me? Well, prove it. Like, let's let's earn it. And we earn it through the yeah. way we communicate, by our actions, to your point, by from our performance. And I love studying the Blue Angels. And I don't know if you've watched the Blue Angels over Annapolis. Oh, yeah. Like, I mean, these are fighter pilots whose lives are literally in each other's hands. They're going hundreds of miles an hour and doing flips and all kinds of crazy stuff. And if you study them, they do a lot of debriefs. And in their debriefs, they will critique themselves and they will say two things at the end of it. Uh, so they'll say, hey, my march out to the plane wasn't exactly the way I wanted it to be. Like that specific. And then mm -hmm. at the end, they'll say, and I'll fix it. And so they mm -hmm. own it and they, they always say, and I'm going to fix it. So it's not woe is me. It's not, I'm a victim. It's, Hey, I screwed up and I'm going to fix it. And when they say, I'm going to fix it, the guy next to him understands, Hey, he's going to fix it. So now I can trust him when we go back in the air. I'm good. And then the other thing that they say at the end is, and I'm glad to be here. So they use this phrase, glad to be here to remind themselves, Hey, I'm grateful to be here. And you mentioned growing up as a Cowboys fan. And I have had the the bad fortune of growing up as a Washington Redskins fan. <laughs> yeah. so, so we'll leave our childhoods out of this. But growing up as a Redskins fan and seeing, you know, a couple miles up 95 and seeing what the Ravens were doing, there was always an envy and a jealousy of the culture that seemed to be the Ravens and the identity and the the the, the gratitude that the players seemed to have. You mentioned Ed Reed and, and Ray Lewis and Jonathan Ogden, like the pride that they had to be a Raven. And so I'd love to just get inside the locker room and get inside your mind and your body and get a sense of what it was like to be a part of a consistent contender and a team that seemed to have an identity and seemed to know exactly how they wanted to do things and the way in which they wanted to show up. It started with leadership, not only from the players, but from Ozzy and, and, and Art Modell and, and Steve Bushotti. It really started from, from them hiring Brian Billick. I'm going to say Ted Marchabrota was too old school, uh, but I will say Brian Billick came in and changed the culture of the, that organization uh, that Bill Belichick had uh, really helped create at that point. Um, looking back at Ray, and after I go over three in 2005, and he says, well, Stove, got those out of the way. Let's go. You know, and Rex Ryan do, saying the same thing to me. Those guys esteeming me. And then I, and then I go on, uh, you know, and, and, and with the media and say, look, that was my fault. I take full blame for this game. Uh, and I'm going to fix it, just like you said. Uh, so within the locker room, uh, you have enough players that are, are stepping up, like uh, uh, Jackson is right now, Lamar. Uh, this guy is – with humility leading that team because he's saying, look, match me. This is, you know, Ray Lewis, I'll never forget it. Match me, we'll win. You know, that means match my intensity, match my passion. Everybody goes out there with that, we're going to win. We, were, we, we did that as a 2003 team that was the youngest team ever in the NFL to step on a football field, and we get to the playoffs. That's crazy. 
And it was because of Ray's leadership. So right, wait, uh, the organization. you go into that, that team right there? Because I hear, I work with college teams, pro teams, and you hear this term young, like, oh, we're young. Mm -hmm. And, you know, we make mistakes. Oh, we're young. And I actually worked with a corporate organization that said the same thing. They said, oh, we're young. And I did an offsite, a retreat, and we decided that they were no longer going to use the term young. And instead, right. they're use enthusiastic, passionate, energetic, because there's all these other great qualities that come with youth. When we say that we're young, it gives us an out. It gives us an excuse to not play up to our possibilities or our potential. So go into that team a little bit more, because I think you were hitting on something that's really interesting, which is what did you guys focus on in that, that year that allowed you to set the table for the, the championship that you would have after that and the, the success you would have after that. Can you just go into that team a little bit? Because I think a lot of young teams, and I'm putting air quotes because people won't be able to see this, they use that as an excuse, but it doesn't sound like you guys were, were doing that then. Well, Billick did a great job of explaining to us where we were weak, you know, where we had our issues, the vulnerability I was talking about. And how he was willing to point that out and not ignore it. So we all understood the pink elephant in the room. But not to allow that to be an excuse. And then with the veterans that were in the locker, remember at that point, shoot, I was in the league 14 years. Um, you know, Ray was in the league since 1996. So that's his, uh, you know, set seventh or eighth year. Uh, Super Bowl MVP. We had Jonathan Ogden in the locker room. We had enough guys in the locker room that were selfless and willing to do whatever it took for the team. Uh, and that being stated, uh, everybody else followed. And remember, in the NFL, 25% of the league turns over every single year. So you have almost, a, you have 12, 13 new guys on your team every single year. So you're constantly going through a transition. So what happened that year, we had such a, a veteran team through 2001-2 because of the Super Bowl run that we re-signed all these guys. We had to trim down. And uh, we had a young team, and we had making sure that uh, uh, we understood why not us. You know, what, what, what says that we can't? And, uh, so we just took ownership of it as a, as a group of leaders, and I would say there was a good eight to nine of us. And because of our passion and our investment, not only in each other and to others, uh, and, you know, me going up to my snapper and my holders and look, guys, we got to make everything. This team needs us more than ever now. Every point matters. And we took a, a, an invested, you know, piece into that and, and we made the difference. So uh, that's really what it came down to is leadership and then, and, then, uh, and, and, and making sure everybody understands, hey, this is where our issues are. So what? And, and that's the way I look at it. Uh, you can't let that be an excuse. You know, it's not lost on me that you're talking about Jonathan Ogden, you're talking about Ray Lewis, you're talking about yourself. And I didn't realize this till I went and worked with Maryland football that really the segregation that often occurs in football where you have the offensive side of the ball, the defensive side of the ball and special teams. And so it sounds like you guys though, were also in lockstep with each other and you were communicating with each other. Um, so I would love to learn a little bit from you as far as what, if anything, you guys did to sort of break down those barriers of the separation between those different parts of the team. Well, number one, you don't let it. Uh, yeah, the defense spends a lot of time together and the offense spends a lot of time together, but you don't, when you get together, you know, off the field or in the locker room, you, you, you get together. I'll never forget, uh, uh, Trevor Price comes in the locker room and he throws five dodgeballs in the middle of the uh, locker room. We have this giant rectangular, rectangular, uh, locker room. And he's, and I said, what, and of course I'm in a locker room just hanging out and there's nobody in there. I said, what are you doing? He says, watch. And about five minutes later, it was the wide receivers versus the DBs in a massive game of dodgeball, man. <laughs> and stupid stuff like that just draws a team together. Here I am getting dinged in my locker by these guys throwing dodgeballs at each other. Uh, you create the environment that includes everybody. If all you're doing is worried about you and your job and very selfish, um, you're going to have a very divided locker room. But if you invest and you earn the right to speak and, and develop a relationship with the guy next to you, hopefully it's not just your special teamers. If you're a kicker around you, that you have an offensive lineman right next to you. You have a, you have a DB right next to you on the other side. And you're intentionally, you have to be intentional with developing those relationships as you are with, with your marriage or your children. You, you can't just think that they're going to be healthy because, oh, well, she's my wife or he's my kid. No, you got to work at it. 
And that's the way it is with the team. And you, you have a lot of the selfish guys that come into the locker room. Uh, but you know, the guys who are the leaders are the ones who are showing people how to do it, showing how their teammates had to do it. And that's what we did. We invested in each other. We'd never demeaned anybody. We always, uh, created and esteemed and, and, and invited guys, make sure everybody's, uh, there for, uh, available for Thanksgiving and, uh, whatever it was. Um, and you just, you just earned the right to speak. Going back, you graduated from college and you're drafted, I think in the 12th round and, we don't have a 12th round in the NFL. So I think there's, there's seven rounds today. And so I would love to go back to draft night and, you know, you have a really good college career, but as you said, you're playing at a smaller school uh, kickers. I think this isn't something that should be taken lightly. There's 30 of you guys and there's not a backup kicker. And, you know, you talked about, Oh, sometimes you'll have a, a kicker that does kickoffs and that, but for the most part, maybe there's 35 spots, right? Like 32 and plus three, 35. Like, well, there's 32 teams now at the time when I was in the league in 1990, it was 28 teams. Yeah. So, so yeah, there's 28. So you're sitting at home. Like, what are you thinking as far as you graduate from school? I think you studied marketing. Like what, yeah. what, what are you thinking as far as, your your journey and your 12th round pick like i would love to just go back to that time because there might be people listening to this right now that you know they have no clue what they want to do and they have no clue what their journey is going to be so i'd love to go back to the beginning and and just get a sense of what your mindset was like then well number one i I knew i needed to get an education because at some point in time i was going to be done with my nfl career it was going to be over no matter if i was 42 and I, i was the oldest player to ever play in a super bowl right still got that but uh, that happened at 42, but who would have thought that I would have done that? So I never depended on that. I only, I only played one year at a time in the NFL, so I only budgeted for that. And I only thought like that. Um, back at uh, Louisiana Tech, did I think I was going to get drafted? I didn't know. Uh, I knew that I was good, but I really – I knew I could beat most of the kickers out there. But what had happened is San Diego Chargers, the Dallas Cowboys, and the New York Giants all came to Louisiana Tech and put me through a workout. And I found out later through two of them that that was the best workout they've ever seen. Um, I actually crushed it for all three of them. So you have these little windows of opportunities to, as a kicker, to catch the eye and uh, get somebody to take a chance and a risk on you. Um, uh, Tim Rooney was the uh, guy from the New York Giants, uh, you know, five foot nothing uh, scout that they had. I didn't know, you know, if he knew anything, but he put me through the workout and the Giants were the ones who ended up drafting me because um, I think they knew that being from Dallas, the Cowboys was one of the teams, and they wanted me as a free agent. They did not have a draft pick, and they already told me that. Steve Hoffman said that, uh, who was their, their kicking uh, special teams guy. Uh, so uh, San Diego also wanted me, but they had John Carney and Fouad Revez on their roster, so I really didn't want to go there and compete against two other guys, but they wanted me. So all three of those teams uh, – wanted me but I didn't know the Giants wanted me until the 12th round and it's the second day like 3 30 it's over at four <laughs> I'm 329th pick at a 331 <laughs> man they said Mr. Stover you just been drafted by the New York Giants in the 12th round uh we need to set up travel arrangements and it was the uh it, I, I think it was Parcel's secretary it was a female that called me and told me <laughs> and I was okay great so, um, you know, after that, uh, well, before that, you know, my mindset was, why, why not? You know, I, I felt like I kicked well. Um, all I need is a shot. Just give me a shot. And, and the window, what, what had happened, and unlike Brad Craddock, uh, who's a friend, when he had, had the opportunity to catch the eye, and he only had a short window, it was the combine and one other opportunity, um, it didn't happen. And uh, for whatever reason, and, you know, that was when my, my window went open and I walked right through it. So um, that, that's the, the things that I would share with people. You prepare, and when that opportunity comes, just knock it out of the park. Just go out there and just knock it out of the park and make sure that you're uh, uh, ready for it. Because why not you? And if that opportunity didn't come or didn't arrive or maybe you struggled on, on the day where those three scouts came to see you, what would you be doing now? Um, I would have been working in sales or marketing or something. I, I knew that at some point in time I was going to have to uh, work outside of the NFL. Um, so my first four off seasons, really three, but kind of three and a half 
I worked as an intern for an international man management group, IMG, in downtown Cleveland. That's where the world headquarters were. So I knew I wanted to um, get into the agent business, financial management business, whatever it was, sports industry, because um, that's I understood the mind of an athlete. So I entrenched myself with people who were already doing that so that I developed a network. I think that's more most important is that you develop relationships while you're playing in college and while you're playing in the NFL. So that when your career, not if, when your career comes to an end, it will, that you have that education and you have the relationships that will take you into the next field of work. Yeah, we had on a guest, Phil Costa, who played for the Cowboys for four years as a center, and he just wrote a book on, on athlete transitions. And what he found was the ones that transitioned the best were the ones that didn't wait until they were retired to build those relationships, right. to build those networks, and to think about what they wanted to do. And I think as we continue to progress as a society, we are becoming more and more accepting of athletes doing whatever they need to do when they're not working specifically on their craft. And there's actually been some research in soccer that when uh, soccer players are actually have, are actually working on something outside of just playing soccer, that they actually are better at performing uh, at their craft. So this notion that you just have to do one thing all the time and don't do anything else, I think is really starting to shift and change. I think it's the best thing for the athlete. It's the best thing for the person. And I think ultimately it's, it's probably the best thing for the team. So um, it does. It, it stops burnout. It really does. I mean, Clay Matthews Sr., right? The guy who I played with at the Browns, uh, 1992 was my second year with the team. And I, and, I, and I looked at him after the season was over, and I said, man, how, how do you do this? This is hard. He says two things. One, he says, I get out of Cleveland. I get away from football. I just totally get away so I can – I can be ready to get shot at when I come back in July. I go, okay, I understand that. Number two, he says, I never get out of shape. I said, I stay in shape. Uh, you know, I'll take my week off to get home in California where he, where he was going. Cause you know, that's where all this, where, where Clay Jr. Go, went USC and all that. Um, and he would go to California every year and I would always wonder why. And that's why. So he can come back fresh and ready to go. So, um, you know, to manage that and to maintain that, 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 that's, that's one of the keys is, is understanding that you have these short windows of opportunity to not be connected. Uh, so a Tuesday off in your regular work week in the NFL, what did I do? I did nothing with regard to football. I didn't work out. I didn't do, it was my day off and I just dedicated to my wife, my kids, whatever it was, and just didn't think about it. And uh, there's no Monday night football. You know, now if I was a quarterback, I'd have to go in later on that afternoon and break down the, you know, break down the game plan. But that wasn't me. I would kick a football. But uh, so th that's really what it comes down to. You mentioned intentionality, and that's a good example of how you were intentional. But I, I want to go back to game day and what you would do to prepare for game day. I think for those of us who don't kick footballs or have never been a kicker, you know, the thing that we think about is golf as a sport that, you know, mm -hmm. you've got a target. Very similar. Yeah. You're trying to hit that target. Um, and so the routines, the habits that can allow us to play our best uh, can, can drastically impact how we perform. I want to try to get a sense of what life was like for you on game day and how you would prepare to perform and what sort of intentional actions you would take to make sure that mentally, physically, emotionally, spiritually, you were ready to go? Well, thank you, Brian. That's a great question. And, and spiritual peace was number one in my life. I'm a Christian guy, and I knew that there was, there was a higher calling in my life other than just kicking a football, really. Uh, but I, I, And I knew that. But during the course of my practice week is really what the most important thing was for game day. Uh, and it, what, what your practice week does is it gives you the understanding and the confidence to go in on that day, game day, knowing that you've done everything you can to perform the best you can. So that when you're standing over the ball, there's not that, oh man, no, I didn't do this. I had such a bad week or whatever. I mean, does that mean practice goes perfect every time? No, but you practice to be perfect. Right. Um, and, and I, 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 I know that, um, as a athlete, you know, during the course of my week, it, I developed my routine 
so that it would create that for me on Sunday. And that plan, I actually talked to Brad Craddock. And Brad, as you know, ended up being the Lou Groza Award winner his senior year. And that had or junior year, junior, senior year. I can't remember. It was junior year. And that, yeah, and that was a lot because he understood that he had a plan. And this plan was going to give, it's going to be enough. It's going to be enough so that he's not out there kicking 100 balls a day. He's out there kicking 26 balls a day, 28 balls a day. And what does that routine look like? So that when you step over the ball on a Saturday, you're ready to go. And there's no doubt in your mind you're going to make it. That's what Sunday, uh, what happened prior to Sunday. But what happens on Sunday is routine. It's, it, can your routine get blown up because of weather, a sickness, an injury? Uh, and, and yeah, absolutely. And it happened all the time. So was I ultra dependent on this? Was I superstitious with what socks I wore? No, I was, it was all about routine. So I would get up at a certain time. If chapel was on Sunday morning, I'd go to chapel. I'd eat breakfast at a certain time. I'd get to the stadium at a certain time. I knew when to go out and walk the field, do my, you know, my target points. Uh, and then I understood what it was like, um, emotionally. Uh, how to prepare myself and how to relax, how to visualize. I did a lot of visualization, you know, see it, feel it, trust it, that type of thing, which I know you know all about. Uh, go through many – during the course of the week, I'm going through at least one, one mental game a day. Come Saturday, I do two. I'm always visualizing winning the game after every one because the kicker has to plan on winning the game every time he plays in a game. He can never go into a game thinking that he's not going to get the game winner. You always, in fact, you want it. And that's how you had to prepare for yourself. And so um, those are the things that I, I did. Visualization, breathing, um, you know, my, of course, my, my pregame routine was very strict. It wasn't too much kicking. It was very methodical. And that was just based on getting myself mentally ready and knowing and understanding my limitations. Brian, you got to know your limitations. So kicking in kicking one way uh, at the stadium in November and December may be a whole lot different than it would be, you know, September, October. So you got to be able to tell the team what your line of scrimmage is needs to be and how far you can make it to be a 90% kicker at that point. And then after that, it's up to them whether or not they want to kick. I'll be ready to kick the field goal, but you just make sure that you have it ready. Uh, so those are, you know, that's just kind of it in a nutshell. I hope that hits on a lot of the points that you wanted. Yeah, no, I mean, it's like a, a book in, in sort of the mental skills that people in my world often talk about. There's also something that's not lost on me, which is you have this preparation mind, which is, Hey, I'm going to try to perfect it. I'm going to work on my technique. I'm going to do it exactly the right way. And if I do this with the right routine and the right habits, then I'm going to prepare. And there's also the Bill Belichick method of practicing your performance mindset, which is, Hey, the ball might be slippery. Uh, you might, twist an ankle or you might have something, you know, a finger that comes in the way of yeah. your, your eyesight uh, as you're trying yeah. to kick the ball. And so it sounds like you blended this preparation mind of, Hey, I'm going to try to make things perfect while also practicing being adaptable and malleable, knowing that as soon as you go between the lines, nothing is guaranteed. You're not in a closed sanitized yeah. environment. You're now in a moving uh, always changing, always evolving environment and to be ready for that. And I think a lot of people, they perfect it, they perfect it, they perfect it, but then they don't have any adaptability to handle, to handle whatever might come their way. So it sounds like you really worked on both of those, which is, which is really cool to hear. Uh, I'm curious about the Super Bowl because as a fan, you know, you spend two weeks sort of building up to watching the Super Bowl, but you don't actually go and, you know, do the whole thing and spend the week there. Um, so I've always just been curious about how, how did you think about the Super Bowl? How was it different? How was it similar? Did you change things? Did you keep it the same? How did you think about approaching the Super Bowl? Well, first of all, let me touch on the ability to adapt. When I go speak around the countries, to corporations, to other teams, to whomever, I, one of my things is I talk about his ability to adapt. You have to. Over 20 years, you don't think you have to adapt. In, in, in any business, you have to be able to adapt. Uh, you know, I had five head coaches, eight special teams coaches, 14 snappers, and nine holders. That's a lot of adaptability you got to have. If you don't, you're screwed, you know. So, um, you know, I think that's critical. Uh, and within a game, uh, there's adaptation. So, so 
the weather may change. And I told him, hey, you got to get the 35-yard line that way, line of scrimmage. And then all of a sudden, look, uh, coach, it's now the 30. Sorry. You know, if you want me to hit that nine out of ten times, you got to get the ball to 30-yard line. And, and th that's what you have to be willing to do and not let pride get in the way. Uh, I think somebody's well, yeah, I can make whatever you throw at me. Oh, okay. Yeah, yeah, sure, sure. Go ahead. Um, it, but you do have to have that understanding of adaptability and the ability to uh, and understand your limitations. But uh, moving into the Super Bowl, you know, that is a just a different game. There's no routine. <laughs> Everything changes because you're no longer at the home field. You no longer travel the same. You're, you're not at home. You've got a ton of family you're trying to take care of, get them to the game, to get tickets. And that's what I really appreciated about Brian Billick. When we won Super Bowl 35, that guy, once we hit, got uh, qualified for the playoffs, you know what he did? He gave us every day of our schedule, practice, when we were going to have time off, what he wanted done prior to, you know, all, getting all the family and all the tickets and everything done with the first week. Don't wait till we get to, the, to uh, Tampa where we had the game. He gave us the full schedule, which allowed us to plan and prepare. Where some coaches just, no, we don't want that to be a distraction right now. No, if you do it well and ahead of time, and you have time to do it, it becomes less of a distraction. So um, that, that I would have to say, if you're ultimately and so hyper-focused on your routine prior to a game, uh, the World Series, all those games are so much different. They're just different. And um, I, as a, as a player, you know, I played in two of them uh, and was in the third one with the uh, New York Giants in 1990. Um, uh, I understood that that was just a different mindset. In 1990, they only had one week. So the team went from San Francisco NFC Championship when we beat the 49ers in Montana all the way to Tampa right that night. We flew directly to the Super Bowl because you only had one week. And you're talking about distraction. You have to get to take care of all that stuff in one week. So that's one of the reasons why they do a two-week thing, to give teams time to, to reset a little bit. Um, but what's the mindset for that game? I don't mind to tell you. It, it, it's, it's heightened. It's a heightened sense of pressure. Um, you try not to let it be, but it is. And uh, you go in there, you try to have the same mindset that, look, I want the ball, give me the ball as a game winner. And, and, and that's exactly how I approached it. Uh, but, you know, and let, let's say that your heart rate was at 120 in a normal game. It's at about a buck 50, you know, uh, when you're in, in the Super Bowl. It's just that, that's just natural for anybody. Right. How could it not be? Uh, so. Uh, in the course of the week, though, is if you have to have a good support system around you. So my wife, people always, how did you stay in the league so long? I said, number one, my, my wife. I mean, she really did a great job of supporting me in my career. Um, she was sacrificial. She took care of a lot of the junk um, and allowed me to stay focused. Uh, there was a time when I went 0 for 3 in that 2005 game. I keep coming back to that because of vulnerability. And she said to me, Matt, you're trying to do too much with the family, too much with kids. I've got this. I've got that. You just get ready to get focused. And we took some things off my plate. And she was a huge piece of that, how I came back and only missed one field goal for the rest of the year. So that, that and I think what happens to a lot of the players in those circumstances, they don't have a very good support around them. And I think that's critical for anybody. And it, you got to look at it as an NFL player, as a high ranking executive, because uh, we are, we're our own little entrepreneur. And we've got to make sure that we have our A game going all the time. I love that. And you hear when people win awards, whether they're musicians or act <laughs> actors or athletes, they always say we, uh, oftentimes they say we. Um, and so I, I think that that's spot on. There's also an element of you that I'm just hearing is your ability to interpret. So your ability to interpret anxiety that you mentioned earlier as like, oh, this is a good thing. Like, okay, this is normal. And I like to make a distinction between pressure and stress. Uh, pressure is something that we should want because that means mm -hmm. that there's something good that possibly could happen, whereas stress can give somebody a heart attack. And but mm -hmm. but it's about the interpretation. And back to the anxiety piece, no one ever died from anxiety. Anxiety is not a bad thing unless you believe that it's a bad thing, and then it mm -hmm. can can cripple people and paralyze, and that's where panic attacks and all kinds of bad things really can happen. So it's the fear of anxiety that really makes anxiety an issue um, when you sort of acknowledge it as part of the human experience uh, and are mm -hmm. aware of it and, and can manage it, then it, it doesn't 
do as much harm. Um, and so I just love how you interpret the world and how you are constantly uh, thinking about how you can interpret situations. Why not me or anxiety or I went over three. It's like, okay, let's, let's get back and I'm going to fix this and I'm going to go to work. Um, mm -hmm. There's just a common thread that I'm hearing as you talk about your career. I want to start to wind down and find out about what you're up to now. So before we fired up the mics, you said you sounded very passionate about the Players Philanthropy Fund that you are, are involved with. So give people some perspective on what that's about and uh, your involvement there as well. Well, my life after football started back in um, uh, two, really 1991 um, after my rookie season. Uh, when I knew that I was married and uh, I needed to figure out what I was going to do after this career. So um, as I was thinking through that, um, uh, you know, I, I started a, a pathway that led into entrepreneurship. Uh, I was a, a, a partner at the creditcards.com uh, back when that was a, a fledgling little company and we sold it. Um, uh, understood that uh, philanthropy and giving back to the community was a big piece because kicking wasn't what I was really about. It was what I did. Um, you know, me as a person, I wanted to use the platform that God gave me uh, and to better the world. So as a Christian person, it's all about the gospel and about, you know, Jesus and, and, and making sure people understood who he is. Um, from my Jewish friends, huh? To, uh, you know, anybody who else was around, um, I wanted to emulate him. So that was the greater purpose that I had. And, and the privilege of the platform is how I navigated through that. Um, as I progressed through my career, um, I learned how to give money away. I learned how to do that uh, with resources uh, by applying for grants, giving my own funds, um, as well as uh, when we did sell the company uh, in 2006, I really learned how to give away money uh, and created uh, a fund um, where I gave a piece of the company prior to the sale to a donor advised fund. And then that allowed me to give away more money instead of being taxed on it and then giving it away. So uh, I, I, I had some really great counselors around me, good lawyers, understanding how to, how to manage that. Um, and from that whole process, I learned how that uh, as athletes, we need good people around us that assist us with those charitable causes. Um, I had a good team around me, but uh, I did most of the work and learned how to apply for grants, learn how to give money the proper way, understood that what best practices were for foundations and tax return 990s and those type of things. So uh, the Players Philanthropy Fund, we call it ppf.org, um, that that's the website. Uh, Brian, it, it birthed itself from a partner of mine and I, um, he, my partner, Seth McDonald was managing private foundations. He was like a rent and executive director. Some family would want to create their own foundation. They hired him to run it and then he would get it funded, get it all organized and, and, and then he would roll it into the, the, to their family. Seth and I created the Players Philanthropy Fund because I knew he would do a lot of the admin. I would do a lot of the marketing and getting the, the, the players in. Uh, and, and we have about 40% of our, no, 60% of our, uh, accounts are, and we have 156 of them, 60% of them are athletes, 40% of them are, um, people who, uh, just everyday guys, people who want to, want to do it. Uh, but what we do is the players philanthropy fund is a donor advice fund that sets up physical sponsorship contracts with individuals. So that allows them to operate as if they have their own private foundation, but they legally do not. They just plug in the and operate as if they do. And then the Players Philanthropy Fund does all their back office. We don't help them raise money. We don't give them money. We are strictly their nonprofit platform that they work through. We give, we are the fiduciary, the Players Philanthropy Fund is the fiduciary for it, meaning that we have legal responsibility over those funds, how they're raised and how they're uh, deposited and then how they're distributed, whether through grants, programs, or through expenses for whatever those events or fundraisers. But only about 40% uh, of our income comes from event expense. So let's say an athlete such as um, Ed Reed or Dwayne Wade or uh, you know any of these people that we have, you can go on my website and look at the roster. Um, they uh, will go out and host a golf tournament or whatnot. We come alongside of them. We do all the financial back office work for them. Uh, and we have to because we, we're, the, we're the legal responsible person, even though their contract states that they have certain things they have to do and abide by. Um, we do, I, I'm doing that because I knew that athletes needed the help. 
I knew that they didn't understand it. They shouldn't have an aunt or an uncle or a sister or anybody else doing it. They also, agents, marketing agents, uh, don't have the time, nor should they be in this world because it's too easy to steal money. I'm sorry, but it is. And it's just another way for those people to get paid and they shouldn't be. Um, they should just do that because it's charitable. Um, and then with regard to um, the scope of, of what we're doing, our job is to keep our fees low and to do all that back office so that more dollars are going to uh, the charitable causes rather than back into somebody, you know, I know there's other physical sponsors that are out there that charge a whole lot more than we do. Uh, so that's a kind of a, a short, believe it or not, explanation um, of what Players Philanthropy Fund do, does and why, you know, I got into it. Uh, at the end of the day, uh, millions and millions of dollars are going through our platform and they are being operated properly. They are being, uh, best practices are being implemented for all of these individuals. And uh, so that when they are out there doing their charitable works, they're doing it responsibly and we're helping them protect their brand. Really cool. And and just so everyone's clear for, I don't know if you guys operate this, but most owner advised funds, you put money in and then you decide where you want it to go out. So if you That's have right. a nonprofit, if let's just use Dwayne Wade as an example, if he has a nonprofit that he is really passionate about, he just contacts you guys and says, Hey, send X amount of dollars to them. Um, and so you're not, dictating or directing where that money goes. So um, I think we just have to make sure it's, it's approved. We're the ones who approve it, that that is a legal 501 C three up good standing. And, and we do that for him. So we actually help him not make those mistakes and his financial advisor loves it. Yeah. Uh, she's just outstanding. And rarely do we deal with an athlete individually. We do have some individual uh, guys and gals that we deal with, but typically it's an advisor that we, we work with and, and, uh, uh, I, I love it. Uh, we've scaled it to the point where, uh, you know, I'm in there uh, almost every day and we just have a, have a great time. I have a great team. Uh, at the end, the most important department that we have is our uh, accounting department <laughs> and how we manage those, all the data that comes in and out so that we're making sure that everything's tracked. You said something earlier and, and we'll, maybe we'll end on this, which is you said, I loved football. Like I just love kicking. Um, and I can hear you talking about the players philanthropy fund in the same way. Like there's a love for it. So I'm curious if you could just unpack what you loved about kicking and what you love about what you're doing now. Well, you know, as a, as a kicker, um, the, what I loved as an athlete is give me the ball. I wanted the ball, but to be on the NFL field, the only way I was going to get the ball <laughs> is if I kicked it. <laughs> so, um, I love the fact that the team had to rely on me. Um, I embraced that. I wanted to be that guy. Um, was it always, um, I guess, as easy as I just stated? No, it, it wasn't. It, it was very difficult. It's a hard career. And God bless the kickers that are out there today. It's hard, especially the extra point at 33 yards, right? I had the most consecutive extra points at 20 yards. And I didn't miss one for 13 years. But out of that, I would have missed a dozen of them, uh, at least. If I would have uh, backed it up a little bit, it's easy to miss a 33 yard field goal. So everybody that makes fun of these kickers missing 30, you know, the extra point, it's, it's real easy to do from 33. So, um, you know, the love that and the passion I had, um, again, was a cause that was greater than myself. It wasn't just about the kick. It was about the platform God gave me and how I was going to use that in a public sense uh, to promote him. And then from there, how I was going to better my family and, and give us the opportunities my, that my children have had. They've thrived. Um, and, uh, being in Baltimore or in the community that I'm in, uh, doing that as well. When you, when you look at the, the players philanthropy fund, uh, my passion is that I really, Brian, want to make sure that, um, looking back, I've helped other people make this world a better place. Um, I'm not going to tell them what cause they, they can and can't support. Uh, doesn't mean that we have to support it, but that means that, you know, if they want to do uh, cancer research or, uh, whatever it is uh, from from boys and girls clubs or whatever, we're willing to help support them in their endeavors to make sure that they're doing it the right way. And more dollars go to those causes than they would if they try to do it on their own. Awesome. I think that's a great place to wind down. I, I just want to acknowledge, I mentioned earlier, 
mental, physical, emotional, and spiritual. And the Greeks said that that's what true strength was. And some of us tend to think that maybe strength is just physical and other of us might think it's just mental and others might think it's emotional and others might think it's spiritual. I think it's, uh, it's when they're woven together and um, if they're leveraged together. And as I hear you talk, it's so clear that you have a spiritual framework that works for you. You had a mental framework that helped you in the NFL and continues to help you thrive uh, off the field. Emotionally, you did a lot of work to make sure that you were sound there. And then physical, we didn't even get into it, but you, you suggested that that was a big piece of the puzzle. So maybe we'll talk about that some other time. But Well, it's a huge piece and, and all of them took work. Uh, you know, having the, the physical piece, I had to be extremely educated on my body and, and core strength and uh, everything. And then, and then the mental piece, uh, you, you had to work on it uh, on and off the field and how you manage yourself off the field and, and the support you had. All those things that we talked about are critical. And if you think that one doesn't work on the other, you're wrong. It will eventually catch up with you, especially I see a lot of guys and I'm going to say it with the wrong girls and that ends up really distracting them and they find themselves out of the league because of it pretty quick. And I just want to thank you. Thank you for your time. Thanks for being vulnerable and sharing and sharing some awesome stories. Uh, if people want to learn more about what you're doing with the Players Philanthropy Fund or anything else, if, if there's a nonprofit that you think deserves a megaphone or, or something that you see come across your fund and you're like, man, they're doing amazing work. Or if, I don't know if you're active on social media, but whatever you want to promote, I just want to give you an open platform to, to do that. Well, thanks, Brian. You've been great. You've been a great host. I appreciate the opportunity to, to speak with you and, and, and bring some content to you, but also for me to be able to share myself and what Players Land Fund is doing. Awesome. I'm on Twitter at Brian Levinson, Instagram, intentional underscore performers. And Matt, looking forward to connecting. We're not too far away, so hopefully we can grab a cup of coffee uh, and I can learn a little bit more about what you're up to and uh, maybe we can help each other out. But uh, grateful to get to know you. Grateful to Brad for connecting us. Our, our favorite Australian kicker, uh, Brad Craddock. <laughs> yeah, amen. And uh, yep. appreciate you and, uh, and thanks for your time. All right, Brian. You too. Take care. Thank you for listening to Intentional Performers with Brian Levinson. Here is this week's episode gem. During the course of the week, I'm going through at least one, one mental game a day. Come Saturday, I do two. I'm always visualizing winning the game after every one because the kicker has to plan on winning the game every time he plays in a game. He can never go into a game thinking that he's not going to get the game winner. You always, in fact, you want it. And that's how you had to prepare for yourself. And so um, those are the things that I, I did, visualization, breathing, um, you know, my, of course, my, my pregame routine was very strict. It wasn't too much kicking. It was very methodical. And that was just based on getting myself mentally ready and knowing and understanding my limitations. 